Um, I, um, how many of you know what writer's block is? Writer's block is when authors go sit in the room and can't think of anything to write. Uh, how many of you know what preacher's block is? <laughs> preacher's block, which I've been preaching a long time, is when you sit in a room all day and can't think of anything to say. Um, today's been one of those days, but usually, usually I've found there is purpose in it because um, sometimes God wants to go past the shaping of our thoughts and, and uh, for us to learn to be willing vessels just, just to share. It's not for the lack of uh, passion or purpose or study, um, but the truth is the voice of God, you can't study yourself into the voice of God. Right. Study yourself into theology any day of the week, any time of the day, but not necessarily into the voice of God. So I am hoping tonight that at least we hear something of the voice of God. I also have um, something on my heart that I wanted to talk about, but I'm, I'm guessing it's not, it's not the right time tonight, um, which is this, that that you can be a Christian without being a follower of Jesus. I want that to sink in. The reason I want it to sink in, the reason I use that terminology is for this, that very often the behavior of those us, we, who label ourselves Christian does not tally or mirror or echo the behavior, the choices, the words, the attitudes of Jesus. And so we can all be guilty of slipping into an institutionalized belief system that has the label Christianity over it and call ourselves Christian. But I think one of the reasons I can't talk about that yet is because I'm still a little bit sore from some things that I believe do not reflect and represent how Jesus would behave or what Jesus would do. And uh, I'm very keen that we, we talk about that. When you're a follower of Jesus, your options in any situation become extremely limited. Because they have a choice, either follower of Jesus, to be faithful or unfaithful. There's actually nothing in between. The I have a choice to forgive you or not forgive you. There's not much in between. So following Jesus is very rewarding, but it's also pretty hard. And um, sadly, when... When we move away from certain things and we are exposed actually to having to measure ourselves by how we reflect Jesus and his purpose and his life. And by no means by that am I saying that look at me, I'm the perfect example of Jesus. I struggle like you do, but some things I've learned is that my options are very limited and sometimes that bothers me and upsets me because I want more options. You know, I want to do a Frank Sinatra which some of you get and some of you don't, because some of you are really slow. <laughs> I did it my way. Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. We still have a tendency, even when we fly under the label of Christian, to actually want to do it our way and want it our way. And um, want to remove ourselves sometimes from the challenge of things like forgiveness and faithfulness and long-suffering, which are fruits of the Spirit. So... Uh, I will talk about that, but I don't think tonight's the night. But what I do want to say about that is a big thank you to, to pretty much all of you, I think, for 
being willing to display some of those characteristics. I, I am under no illusions that the journey that I am on and some of the things that I now conclude and believe are a struggle and a challenge to many of you. Um, as they have been and are still to me. And I think there's great value in, in when we can walk together because we've agreed to walk together, not because we necessarily agree on every point. Of that, That's the spirit of Jesus. That, that's, that, that's the heart of Jesus. And um, um, one, one guy who I respect greatly said an amazing thing, which you'll think it's wrong when you hear it. He said that, he said that peace... Um, let me see if I get this right. It's the one about the absence of conflict. Yeah, that's not the one I'm looking for, so forget it. <laughs> that was right. It was, it was right, but not, not the one I was looking for. Um, it'll come to me later. Anyway, that's probably why I don't need to talk about it tonight, so we're not, we're not going to push the... Um, but what I did feel coming in, um, just something was stirring in my spirit. And, you know, sometimes you think, why? Why do, why do that? But that's when sometimes for people like me, um, I, I have to not have something. And so you learn to be obedient because um, all of us can become, you can all become professional Christians. You know what I mean by that when we talk about, oh, you're just a professional, which means we've lost the heart of it, the passion, we've become professional. And people like me can become professional pastors or professional preachers, which means you've really lost the heart, but you know how to do the job, you know how to work a crowd and all that stuff. So, so I'm saying that just to you know, help us walk in a, a realm of reality and sometimes learn that we have to just be obedient to, um, to what God is saying. So, so he, here's what I... Here's what I want to do, and I just think it's important if you say, well, for what reason it just is. Um, when we were in India, we were staying in a hotel in Cochin, uh, in the south of India, on our way up to Goa. And uh, our friend there, Martin Philip, um, had asked if we would just meet his brother for breakfast. His brother's called Marvel, that's the name, isn't it? Marvel. Uh, they're all M's, Martin, Marlow, Marvel, oh, Marshall, yeah, sorry, Marv, Marvel's the young one, I get mixed up, so Marshall's the older one, and there's Marvel and Marlow and Martin, and uh, Bina's, Bina's family are all B's, Bijou, Binu, Bina, and I can't think of the others, just pick a B and you've pretty much got, got the family sussed. But uh, uh, Martin asked us if we'd meet Marvel. Marvel was Marshall. Sorry, I like Marvel better. Let's call him Marvel for tonight because we like that better. Um, it might be. We love you, Marshall. Um, Martin wanted us to meet with him because he's, he's been on a bit of a journey and, you know, raised in a Christian home, the whole thing that some of us have been and raised around ministry and a lot of questions, a lot of challenges and... Um, um, making some of the difficult decisions in his journey that, that we have also made, which don't come without cost um, in the initial stage. And uh, so Martin said, okay, we sat down for breakfast, you know, because it's a typical Martin as well. We have to leave like in 20 minutes for the airport, okay? 
So we've got 20 minutes, and in this 20-minute window, he said, oh, so Marshall wants to know about the new covenant, okay? We have to leave in 20 minutes. Um, and so Marshall said, yeah, I'm really keen. Tell me all about it. Switches um, uh, voice memo on his phone, sticks it in the middle of the table, and says, now go. So funnily enough, I, I felt that's what I need to do. Because it's so much the essence of, of what this house is about, and you need to know. In, in Jeremiah chapter 31, from verse 31 to 35, and in Hebrews chapter 8, from verse 7 to 13, there is, apart from one or two differences, a mirrored portion of Scripture. What's interesting is that one is, is the Old Testament portion of Scripture, the bit before Jesus ever comes on the scene, and the other one is in the New Testament portion of Scripture, which is the bit after Jesus comes on the scene. And evidently, in the transition between these two timescales, nothing has changed in this message that was first spoken by the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31. And it says, it says these words, it says, The time is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with my people. Now it uses the words the house of Israel and the house of Judah and some people would argue it's a promise to Israel and Judah which my argument on that very simply would be if that is the case then nobody other than from Judah or Israel will ever find peace with God or life with God so it can't possibly mean that because any person you meet who claims to be a Christian believer will say that they are a Christian because of the new covenant so that's that out of the way straight away. So we use the term my people. Time is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with my people. Now a covenant is a binding promise made by the covenanter. It's something that the covenanter enters into promising that they will not break what the covenant says, they will not break it. Now what's interesting is that Jeremiah's words were that God said, I will make a new Covenant. Now, I often say to people, the clue of what this covenant contains is in the name. It's a new covenant. So we have to define what we mean by a new covenant. Now, if you build an extension on your house, you do not have a new house, okay? You might have a new room on your house, but you don't have a new house. You simply have the old house with the new part built on. So if you want to describe the new covenant, that Jeremiah talks about as being all the old stuff, and by that I mean everything you and I were raised with and that was taught in Christianity surrounding the Ten Commandments, right? God's rules for living, which were good rules, but God's rules for, give, for living, known as the Old Covenant as opposed to the New Covenant. If we simply have that system of belief and understanding of God with Jesus added on as the way that God lets us off what it is that we did in that covenant, then that's not a new system. That's an old covenant with a new bit added on. So in the same way that putting an extension on your house doesn't give you a new house, just adding Jesus onto the old stuff that most of us thought was the gospel is not the new covenant. And so God says, I'll make a new covenant uh, with my people. And he says something interesting because the next verse, uh, verse 14 says, it will not be like the covenant I made with your forefathers when I led them out of Egypt. Now, what that tells us is the covenant he's talking about that it's not going to be like is, is, is what in, Christ, in, in church terms we know as the old covenant, old covenant, your terms, you will have encountered it through these Ten Commandments, right? 
You probably can't recite the Ten Commandments, but I don't think there's anybody here who's not aware of their presence, or anybody here whose mind would not say that the Ten Commandments are at the core of believing in God and doing what God wants. And most of society thinks that as well. But this amazing prophecy says that what it is that God is going to do will not be like that. Okay, So we have an issue that this new thing doesn't look like, feel like, sound like, or smell like that old covenant that was made with Moses when he led the children of Israel out of Egypt, which is the Ten Commandments and the thing that we know as the law. Now, all you need to know about that law is that it was based on performance, right? You were rewarded for doing good. You were punished for doing bad. You had to live up to a standard to be accepted before God. Now... We jump to this other mirroring of this scripture in the book of Hebrews and chapter 8. And the statement that's in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 35 is mirrored from verse 8 to verse 14. But it's sandwiched between two pieces of bread. Okay, It's a new covenant sandwich in the, in, in the New Testament. And those two pieces of bread that sandwich it are verse 7 and verse 13. Now here's what verse 7 says before it launches into this repeat of the new covenant. It says, if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, there would have been no need for another. Okay? If there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, there would be no need for another. So we actually have the Bible telling us that there was something wrong with that first covenant that we know as the old covenant that was the Ten Commandments that we've made so important and they're good rules for life, good rules for morality. But God said in this prophecy that, 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 that if, if they'd been perfect, there'd have been no need for another. So the question is, what was it that was wrong with that first covenant? Because if it was God who gave us the Ten Commandments and the law from the commandments and all those practices, how could that have something wrong with it? Well, it's not that it's wrong to not commit adultery. It's not that it's wrong to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind and strength. It's not that it's wrong not to lie about people. Uh, to, but... but but the problem is that that law could never bring you to a place where you could find acceptance before God. Because here's the rule of thumb. If God is perfect, to access God and be blessed by God, you must be perfect. And those laws were given to show you what personal human perfection looks like. The problem is that nobody ever was able to fulfill that law except Jesus Nobody is ever able to keep that law, so all the law could ever do is one of two things, either to point out our failings or to point out our pride. That's all it was capable of doing, pointing out your failures, that you would never be good enough, and some of you think, I'm sat here, but I'll never be good enough for God. You're right. You're absolutely a thousand percent right. You will never be good enough. Or the other thing it does is pride, for some of you think, well, you know, I'm just, God must just think I'm amazing. You're lying to yourself. And so the flaw of it was that it could never do what God actually was wanting it to do, which is to bring us into relationship with a God who is good and a God who blesses us. So it was designed to show us that by our own efforts, we can never get to the place where the thing that we're looking for, which is God in our lives, will happen, okay? So if that had been okay, there'd been no need for another, so it wasn't okay. Now verse 13 says that what is obsolete and aging must soon pass away. 
So it talks about that whole system being obsolete. Now, obsolete means that the thing you're talking about is no longer made by the manufacturer who made it in the first place, okay? It's obsolete. You can't buy it anymore. The manufacturer doesn't make it. But you see, the problem with obsolete, which if you've ever been to India or Africa or Cuba or any of those places, you will see extremely old vehicles that you think that should not be on the road. That is not fit to be on the road. That is dangerous. The law is dangerous. The commandments are dangerous. But what happens is a whole industry springs up where people who are not the manufacturer make spare parts to keep the vehicles running that are now obsolete when they should never be running but be allowed to die a natural death and go to that great bust heaven in the sky. Okay? And, it, and here it tells us in Hebrews that that old system was, is now obsolete and what is obsolete and aging should be allowed to pass away. Now, here's my little advice to you. What's happened within the Christian community is a whole industry has sprung up that makes spare parts to keep a system running that God says he doesn't want anymore. That system is the system of the law. It's the system of human performance. It's the system of being rewarded for doing good and punished for doing bad. It's the system that makes you feel you'll never make it and you'll never be good enough. And you have to do more and give more and pray more and be more and talk more and read more Bible and know more stuff and be kind. It's that system that this Covenant says is obsolete. That is not how God measures humanity or how God gives his goodness to humanity anymore. Okay? So then from verse 8 through verse 14, he almost repeats identically what Jeremiah wrote in verses 31 through 35 of chapter 31. Now there's one other thing that we have to just say here, and that is this. Both of those Scriptures say this, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make the new covenant. So the question is, when is the time? Because if we know when the time is, we can either prepare ourselves or receive what it is that's given. Now, some people might tell you that that time is some future time when the world is finished and there's been a rapture and whatever, and Jesus has come back, whatever all those words mean to you. But that is not true. Because when Jesus had the last supper with his disciples, he did something very specific. He took the, the cup of wine that was the last cup of the supper, supper and he lifted it up and he said these words, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, okay? This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Now you partake of this. Now was it just meaning partake of a cup of wine? Was he even suggesting partake of my blood, not drinking it in the sense of physically doing a Dracula deal on Jesus' blood, but actually whatever that blood was about, whatever that blood was accomplishing, making it part of your life. He was saying this cup is the new covenant, or was that cup actually, that when we received the truth of that, which was fulfilled in Jesus' death on the cross, was that actually the moment that the new covenant, this new legal promise, became activated in humanity? I suggest to you that that is the truth, that this new covenant 
began that day Jesus lifted the cup. It was sealed by his death on the cross, which is part of what Jesus' death was about, so that we could now enter into the new covenant, not driven by our performance under an old law or by our moral perfection, but receiving us in our imperfection and even in our immorality to change our lives from the inside out because we were not accepted because of anything that we do, but because of what he has done for us. So we have these two covenants. So, so time is coming. I'll make a new covenant. It will not be like the old one, declares the Lord. And so then we have a little issue because in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 34, it says that I will put my law in your mind and write it on your heart. The terminology there is singular. You understand the difference between singular and plural. Plural is many. Singular means just one. So it doesn't seem very significant, but it's actually vitally important that you understand that Jeremiah said, I will put my law in your mind and write it on your heart. Okay. Now we seem to have a problem here because when we now go to those verses written in Hebrews chapter 8 and we read them in verse 10, it says, I will put my laws in your mind, plural with an S, and write them, plural, on your heart. That is an error, okay? Now, again, we're not going to get into a deep Greek lesson because when he said you've got 20 minutes go, you can't get into deep Greek lessons. But let me just pose something to you very practically. The Greek word there that translates in verse 10 as laws is the Greek word nomos, N-O-M-O-S, okay? It occurs 198 times in the New Testament, on 196 occasions of those 198 times, it's written law. On only two occasions is it written laws with an S. That's here in verse 10 and also in chapter 10 of Hebrews where it repeats these same verses. It's the only occasions where that Greek word is translated laws, plural. Now it's important you understand this because the original prophecy was I will put my law in your mind and write it on your heart. Now the question is, what is it then that he puts in our mind, writes on our heart? A guy one day asked Jesus and said, what's the greatest commandment in the law? meaning the law of Moses, that law that he said the new covenant won't be like. And uh, Jesus said, well, in the law, now I put those words in, they're not in the Bible, but this was the correct answer to the question. In the law, the greatest commandments can be summarized into two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, people preach that and say, so this is what God will put in your mind and write on your heart. God help us if he does. At least there's one thing, when that commandment is written in the book, you can shut the book, say, I can't do that, and put it on a shelf and go and have a cup of coffee or something a little stronger if you're even more depressed. But if that's written, putting, written in your, put in your mind and written in your heart that you can never escape it, imagine every second of the day something saying to you, that's not loving the Lord your God with all your heart. That's not loving him with all your mind. That's not loving him with all your strength. You would come under condemnation every second of every day. And if you thought you'd fulfilled that, he would say, you're not loving your neighbor the same way as you're doing. You've got spaghetti bolognese. They've only got toast. Why haven't they got spaghetti bolognese? Because if you loved your neighbor as you love yourself, you'd take your spaghetti bolognese and give your spaghetti bolognese to your neighbor. 
So on both of those counts, all those two rules do is condemn us. Because the idea was you can't do it. That's why the first two commandments were supposed to let us know that it's, this is impossible. I can't love God in that way. I can't serve my neighbor in that way. So that can't be what he puts in your mind and writes on your heart if this is a new covenant and the old covenant is gone. So the question would be, what is it then that he puts in our mind and writes on our heart? Because it would appear that we've gone from a whole lot of laws to just one law that God is going to put in our mind and that God is going to write on our hearts. So the question is, what is it that he puts in our mind and that he writes on our heart that will make such a huge difference and represent the new covenant. I'll tell you what it is. Shall I tell you what it is? I struggled to find what this was for you. I knew it was there, but I couldn't quite figure out what it was that he writes on our hearts. Because it's all based on the fact that, for example, John, Jesus' closest disciple, defined love. He said, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. So John's already taken the definition of Christianity from how much you love God to how much God loves you. He's taken the effort and the strength from your effort to try and love God to God giving his strength to love you. So John says this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and he gave himself for us. And then he goes on to say that we love him because he first loved us. That his love is not a response to our generated love for him. Our love for him is a response to his received love for us. So the whole thing is not you've got to love God more to receive this. The whole thing is you have to recognize how much more God loves you in order to receive this. So I thought, yes, but what is it? If there's one thing that he puts in, your mind, writes in your, puts in your mind and writes on your heart, what is it in simple terms? And I suddenly got one of those eureka moments some time ago. It was just one of those, a light bulb comes on. And I realized that if the essence of God's love for me is at its highest point of representation in the sacrifice of Jesus at the cross then surely what Jesus said at the cross to conclude the point at which the new covenant was it had to be what he writes in our heart. So God came down and he said, here's what I'm going to put in your mind and write on your heart. It is finished, right? The last words of Jesus establishing the new covenant, he said, this is the new covenant, not it must be done, not you must achieve it, not you must love more, pray more, behave better, but it is finished. And it, meaning whatever it is, it meaning everything that it is, is completely and totally finished. So now on my mind, in my mind and on my heart, God writes his declaration over me. Now, that's the one law. It's the one law covenant. And the truth is, it's not a law that you keep any longer. It's a law that he keeps, right? So you don't keep this. He keeps this because it's a covenant that he says, I promised that it is finished when Jesus spoke his last words on the cross. So in your life, for all that you face, God says, okay, here's how it stands. It is finished. Our role is simply to accept the situation that God has put us into. Now, Another little thing on that. 
I want you to understand where that roots from. Because way, way back in history, before Moses, there was a guy called Abraham. And God wanted to make a covenant with Abraham. So Abraham was the picture in the Bible of what faith looks like. How many of you know Jesus was the picture in the Bible of what God looks like, okay? So when you see Jesus, you see God. When you see Abraham, you see faith. Now go and read the story of Abraham and count how many times he messed up, got mixed up, failed, made a total backside of it, and yet he was the man of faith. Why? Because through all his own failures, he realized that he was bound by a covenant that he had not made with God, but that God had made with him. And you see, when you understand it's a covenant God made with you, you by faith go through all your failures and weaknesses because you receive the fullness of that truth. So here's what happened. One day God said, Abraham, here's the deal, son. We're going to do this covenant thing. Remember, a covenant is a binding promise. So he told Abraham to do something Abraham was familiar with, which today you could get put in prison for. Um, you'd have to be a butcher in the slaughterhouse and not tell anybody, but then that would be considered a secret right in the cult, so don't go and try this. But he said, here's what you do. And he told him which animals to take, and he said, now, here's what I want you to do. Kill the animals, you bleed them out, and then cut the carcasses in two. So you slit the carcasses in two long ways, and you put one carcass one side of a, a pathway and one the other side, okay? So we've got these carcasses, blood everywhere, nasty, and the idea was that you, you and the person you were making covenant with, you, you bound yourself together and you walked through the middle of these animals in the blood and you made a covenant that said, let it be done to me as has been done to these animals if I fail to keep the covenant that I've made with you this day. Very serious. And uh, there were people who would enforce those covenants. So Abraham and God are supposed to do this. But the wonderful deal is that when the time came to walk through the middle of the animals, it says God put Abraham in a deep sleep. So Abraham's way off, he's dreaming, he's seeing things, he's, you know, and uh, when he wakes up, the covenant's already made. So God himself, without Abraham, walked through the middle of these carcasses in the blood, and what was happening, you see, you can't make a covenant with nobody and the truth is, in essence, although God was kind of making a covenant with Abraham, in one sense he wasn't. Because you can only have covenant with somebody who makes covenant with you. God was making a covenant with himself. God was promising himself that he would forever be Abraham's hope and shield and salvation and strength and provider and forgiver and lover. God promised himself that he would never let himself down, which meant, of course, that Abraham would never be let down. But you see, Abraham could never break the flow of that promise towards him because you can only break a covenant that you made. But any covenant you didn't make, you can't break. So it was impossible for Abraham to break this covenant because Abraham never was in the covenant with God. God made a promise to himself that he would do it. And that was the promise to Abraham. Now here's the wonderful thing. When we then shoot forward and we come to Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus, in a remarkable, wonderful, allegorical, pictorial, but very real spiritual way, because God 
was in Christ and because Jesus was not only man but was God, when Jesus gave his life on the cross, in essence, God himself was passing through that broken body of Jesus, okay? Just like back when God went through the carcasses and the blood in Abraham's day, which were just animals here, God goes through the broken body of Jesus, the blood that Jesus gave on the cross. And the Bible says this, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. God was in Christ, just like with Abraham's animals, reconciling the world to himself. And on that day that Jesus gave his life on the cross, the moment the new covenant was fully established for you and me, we never were asked to make a covenant with God about our behavior, our performance, our commitment, our keeping of rules and laws and regulations. God made a covenant with himself that can never be broken and that covenant was in regards to Joel Chapman and everything he is, God says it is finished. Regard to Jenny Byrne and everything that it is, God says it is finished. In regard to Graham Byrne and everything in his life, God said it is finished. God made a promise with himself that he could never break. So the wonder of the new covenant is that it's a one law covenant, not that we keep, but that God keeps because he made that covenant with himself and that covenant is that he will always write in your life, it is finished. Now, here's where this comes to a conclusion. At the end of this promise, there's a remarkable statement because it says in verse, in in Jeremiah 31 and verse 35, for their sins and unrighteous acts, I will remember no more. That's the essence of the covenant. Their sins and unrighteous acts, right? Let's change the there. Chloe, your sins and unrighteous acts. God says, I will remember no more. Michael, God says your sins and unrighteous acts, I will remember no more. Now you can't remember something that you can't remember. So we have ideas about God. For example, we then read scriptures through this old thing with the new bit added on and we hear about books being opened and men being judged out of books. But how can you judge somebody for something that you've not remembered and you've forgotten? So we have this incredible thing in the new covenant that God says all the responsibility that was once on your shoulders to gain access to God and peace with God, I take on my shoulders and I offer you access to God and I offer you peace with God because every sin, every unrighteous act, every failure, every weakness, every bad thing you ever did, every stupid thing you ever did, he said, I will not remember it anymore. So some of you think God's going to judge me for the stuff I did. Don't remind God about stuff he's already forgotten because he won't know what you're talking about. Because your sins and unrighteous acts I will remember no more. And the remarkable part of this covenant is that it says that I will be their God, they will be my people. God decides that arbitrarily. I will be your God, you'll be my people. And he said you won't have to teach your neighbor or your friend know the Lord because they'll all know me from the least of them to the greatest. I can't claim to have figured that out in all its fullness. But all I know is that the new covenant ain't like the old covenant. All I know is that in the new covenant, this wonderful promise that in my life, God has taken the responsibility, the whole responsibility, the total responsibility, and promised himself 
that he would never break the covenant that says it is finished in my life means that in my spiritual being, in my physical being, in my mental state, in my attitudes, in my compulsions, in my desires, in my orientations, in God's eyes, everything that is necessary for my life to be totally transformed... Everything that is necessary for me to have peace with God, to know his presence, to know his love, to know his kindness, to know his forgiveness, and to walk as a human being blessed by heaven itself, everything is already provided for us. And the issue of the new covenant is not that I have to do something to get it, but I simply have to be humble enough to receive it. Now what's crazy is a lot of people don't want to receive it. Because we want to value our life by our own performance. And so you get what you pays for. The secret of being a follower of Jesus is to recognize that he brought the new covenant. And to realize it's finished. Well, you know I'm sick. What's God written on your heart? As he said, well, you better change your diet. You maybe ought to change your diet. You know, you better, you better pray more, you better learn more Bible, you better attend church more. Oh, well, I'm struggling with this, 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 this weakness in my life. Okay, well, you better sort yourself out and make your behavior better. That, that's not what is written. What is written on that? You say, I need a change, and God says it's finished. You say, I need a healing. God says it's finished. You say, I need forgiveness. God says it's finished. You say, I need this habit breaking. God says it's finished. It's finished. It's finished. And what God has written in your heart can never be washed away. How foolish it would be if that is put in our minds and inscribed on our hearts if we were not to live under the full benefit of that new law that he has given that he promised to keep that we simply receive. As Brennan Manning, a man who I love deeply, once said, you will never be measured by the good that you do, only by the grace you accept. So I implore you tonight, receive that grace, your answer, your peace, your wholeness, your understanding of your forgiveness, your your appreciation of how close God is to you, your, your, your acceptance of him being father in your life, all rests on you simply being willing to echo the words of Jesus and accept that if he said it's finished and he did what was necessary to make that a covenant, all I have to do tonight is receive that covenant. Bow your heads. If there's something within that covenant tonight, you just say, I want to receive that. I, I, I need to acknowledge that it's finished in my life. Maybe, maybe you've never dealt with your own unworthiness and sense of separation, your sense of abandonment. Maybe, maybe your inability to acknowledge God as Father, to recognize that, that you are forgiven, that God doesn't remember your sins and unrighteous acts, the, the value of your life. If, if some of those things you've never really acknowledge it. If it would help you, while every head is bowed, every eye closed, if it would help you to, to, to make, get a grasp of that so that you're really saying, yes, it's finished in my life, it's finished in my heart, it's finished in my spirit, it's finished in my mind, then if you want to just slip up your hand right now, just know that that's a, an acknowledgement, a confession of that. Thank you. Just slip, anyone else, just slip up your hand, you can take it down again. It's an acceptance. It is finished. It is finished. It is finished. And we're going to pray. Haven't we made things complicated? 
That old covenant was a complicated covenant. Particularly once men got hold of it and turned it into, you know, all kinds of behaviors of every kind. But when God came in Jesus, he made it so simple that Jesus said a child can receive this. My little Riley, my grandson, in life everything's finished. He knows. Why? Because mama and grandma and dadad, it's finished. Does he have to worry? No, it's finished. He just has to live in the acceptance of what has been done for him by someone else. It's as simple as that. A child can receive it. I want you to receive it tonight. I want you to be able to go out of here tonight with, a, with a, the weight lifted off your shoulders, with, 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 a, with an explosion in your spirit that says, I'm accepted by God. He's become my father. I know that I'm forgiven. I receive it. His life is touching me now. Heaven is coming into my life now with its healing and its power and its strength in Jesus' name. So we're going to pray. Father, thank you for making a new covenant with yourself on our behalf and making it so simple that all we had to do was receive it. I receive it again tonight. And for everyone who raised their hand, Father, let this be a moment of impartation by the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead bringing it into their lives, even like life came into the tomb and Jesus walked out. Let some people tonight walk out from a tomb of death in Jesus' name and for healing and for life and for strength. We just pray that, that as you've released that tonight, we receive it because it is finished. And so we thank you, Lord. Like the guy in the bed who said, Lord, help me. Because what has he got to be thankful for? We thank you tonight for the new covenant established on our behalf, put in our minds, written on our hearts, ready to burst out of us to revolutionize everything that we are involved in and everything in our own life and to know your presence every moment of every day as our Father, our Helper, our Friend, the ungodlike God, the unmessiah-like Messiah with this new narrative of the new covenant. We receive it and thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Bless you. We're done. Hope that's helped you and uh, enjoy some cheese. All right. We're done.